Chapter 5 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Battle of New Orleans. About midnight on April 23rd came the signal for which we were all waiting. Two red lights at the peak of the flagship. It meant that the fleet was to get under way. We were ready and eager for the test after the long strain of preparation in which all manner of ingenious suggestions had been applied in order that the fleet might get by the forts with as little damage as possible. Our hulls had been daubed with river mud in order to make them less visible in the darkness. Captain Alden of the Richmond had the idea, which worked out excellently, of having the decks around the guns whitewashed so that the implements required in the working of the guns could be easily identified by the gunners as they picked them up for use. And with what insistent care we had drilled the guns' crews in order to ensure rapidity of loading and firing, to protect vital parts of the ships from the impact of projectiles, chain cables were secured to the ship's sides. As the Mississippi was a side-wheeler, we stowed our cables in the coal bunkers, between the wheels and the boilers and machinery. Though we hoped that the fire of the mortars might keep down the fire of the forts, it was evident from all these precautions that Farragut was not over-sanguine on this score. Before the fleet started, Lieutenant Caldwell, early in the evening, made another trip up the river to make sure that the way was clear, and this time a cutter actually rode through the opening and sounded with a lead line. The Mississippi's position in the advance was directly astern of the Pensacola in the 1st Division under Captain Bailey, while Farragut with the Hartford led the 2nd Division. Our orders were to keep in column, maintaining distance from the ship ahead. It was evident that the ship in the lead would have the advantage, perhaps, of getting well by the forts before she was discovered, while the ship's following would be subject to any delays caused by her. Captain Smith of the Mississippi had opposed trying to make the passage in the night. His idea was to go ahead full speed by day, fighting our way. Thus there would be no danger of running aground, and we would know just what we were doing. I cannot see in the night, he declared with characteristic brevity. I am going to leave that to you, Dewey. You have younger eyes. He took charge of the battery while I took up my post on the hurricane deck from which we handled the ship. For a man of twenty-four, I was having my share of responsibility. I was also to have my baptism of fire. But I had little time to consider the psychology of an experience which is the source of much wonder and speculation to the uninitiated. When it comes, you are utterly preoccupied with your work. You are doing what you have been taught is your duty to do as a trained unit of a man of war. Only after the danger is over is it time to reflect. The wait before action is the period of self-consciousness, which ends with the coming of the first shot from the enemy or the command to fire from your own side. Adapting our speed to that of the Pensacola, which was without lights, as all the vessels were, we steamed ahead while the booming of the howitzers and the swish of the shells through the air made music for our progress. Just as the Pensacola drew abreast of the forts, the enemy discovered her and opened fire. We were so near the forts that we could hear the commands of the officers. The Pensacola stopped and fired both broadsides, which at first seemed to demoralize the enemy. A second time the Pensacola stopped and discharged broadsides. 
and it was soon evident from the fact that the forts kept on firing that although the mortars might reduce the fire from the forts they could by no means silence them nor could the pensacola which had the heaviest armament of any of our ships silence them except for a brief interval during the effect of her broadsides therefore all the ships in order to get by must run the gauntlet of a heavy fire it was most puzzling to me why the pensacola had stopped in view of the orders to steam past without delay either she could not resist pausing to engage the forts or else there was something wrong with her engines the latter i believe was the real reason at all events she did stop twice which meant that we also had to stop the mississippi herself was already under fire and returning it and while my attention was centered in trying to keep astern of the pensacola i received warning of an attack from another quarter farragut had assigned to us mr wad an artist for an illustrated weekly when he had asked for the best position from which to witness the spectacle captain smith advised the foretop where he had a twenty-four pound howitzer wad was an observant as well as a gallant man and from the foretop he could see everything that was taking place even better than he could from the hurricane deck here is a queer-looking customer on our port bow he called to me looking in the direction which he indicated i saw what appeared like the back of an enormous turtle painted lead color which i identified as the ram manassas which had driven the federal ships from the mouth of the river the previous autumn in the action called pope's run she was rebuilt entirely for the purpose of ramming and if she were able to deliver a full blow in a vital spot she was capable of disabling any ship in the fleet the darkness and the confusion perfectly favored the role for which she was designed by prompt action we might put a dangerous opponent out of commission before she had done any damage there was no time in which to ask the advice of the captain who was busy with the battery below i called to starboard the helm and turn the mississippi's bow toward the manassas with the intention of running her down being confident that our superior tonnage must sink her if we struck her fairly but a f warley her commander a former officer of our navy was too quick for us his last service had been in the mississippi in a round-the-world cruise he appreciated her immobility in comparison with the mobility of his own little craft and sheered off to avoid us but then sheering in he managed to strike us a glancing blow just abaft the port paddle wheel the effect of the shock was that of running aground the Mississippi trembled and listed and then righted herself. When I saw the big hole that the ram had left in our side, I called, Sound the pumps, to the carpenter, an experienced old seaman who was on the main deck near me. I have already, sir, he answered, and there is no water in the wells. He had acted promptly and instinctively in his line of duty. If there was no water, I knew that there was nothing to worry about. It was the sturdy construction of the Mississippi that had saved us from serious damage. As she was one of our earliest steam men of war, her builders had taken extreme care, lest the fear expressed in some quarters that her engines, making about uh, ten revolutions a minute, would shake her to pieces, should be justified. She was filled in solid between the frames. The impact of the ram, which would have sunk any other ship in the fleet, had taken out a section of solid timber, seven feet long four feet broad and four inches deep about fifty copper bolts had been cut as clean as if they were hair under a razor's edge i remember seeing their bright gleaming ends when i looked down from the hurricane deck and my first glimpse of that hole in our side 
if Worley, who knew just where the Mississippi was vulnerable, had been able to strike forward of the paddle-wheel, as he evidently was planning to do when we caught sight of the Manassas and went for her, he would have disabled one of our leading ships. This would have been a feather in his cap. But he gave a very lively account of himself, however, before the night was over, and the Mississippi had another chance at him. The formation of the ships in our rear was pretty well broken up. Every ship was making its own way in the melee out of danger. Particularly was this true of the second division under the lead of the Hartford with Farragut on board. When he came abreast of the forts, the enemy had steadied down. The preparatory period of bombardment by Porter's flotilla had hardened them to mortar fire, and now they were hardened to broadsides and had the range of the passing ships. So they stuck to their guns calmly and made the most of their own fire. The Hartford and Brooklyn received a terrific cannonade. Meanwhile, the Manassas, like some assassin in the night, had proceeded down through the fleet, greeted by fire from our ships whenever she was recognized, and watching a chance for a murderous thrust. She succeeded in putting a hole in the Brooklyn, which might have been most serious were it not for the anchor chains on the Brooklyn's side which resisted the blow. Throughout the passage of the forts, fire rafts were coming downstream to add to the picturesqueness of the lurid scene and the difficulty in keeping our course. One of these rafts nearly brought the career of Farragut's flagship to a close. It was pushed by a little thirty-five-ton tug called the Mosher, manned by a dozen men under the command of a man named Sherman. To him belongs the credit of one of the most desperate strokes of heroism I have ever known. It was an example of how the South, with its limited resources, was able to maintain its gallant struggle for four years against great odds. His tug had no guns and no armor. In the face of certain destruction from the guns of the Hartford, he pushed the raft against the Hartford's side. The Mosher's captain and crew all lost their lives, as far as is known, but they had the satisfaction of seeing flames darting up the Hartford's rigging and bursting through the ports, which, thanks to the discipline of the crew, were quenched. But though he had lost his flagship, Farragut would have gone past the forts with what remained of his fleet. We may be sure of that. In passing the forts, the Mississippi had fired grape and five-second shell from alternate guns. I was surprised to see how well the forts stood our own pounding, and also how well we stood theirs. Though the Mississippi had been hit a number of times, our loss had been trifling, two killed and a few wounded. To judge by the noise and the flashes of the mortars in air, and the guns from the forts and the busy fleet, it seemed as if the destruction done must be far worse than it was. I remember, however, as we passed out of range of the forts, thinking that some of the ships certainly would not get by. Three failed, these being in the rear of the second division. Of course, we were all new to war. Neither our aim nor the Confederates was as accurate as it was later. For example, at uh, Port Hudson. In time, we learned to pay attention less to the quantity of fire and more to the extent of its effect. From all we had heard, we were expecting a hard fight once we were beyond the obstructions above the forts. The Confederates had taken pains not to minimize the reports of the formidability of their river defense squadron. But, as so often happens, the enemy in reality was not anything like so powerful as rumor had made him. The big ironclad Mississippi had not been completed in time to leave her dock in New Orleans, while her sister ship, the Louisiana, unable to move under her own steam, 
had been anchored above the obstructions to play the part of a floating battery. The business of taking care of the other vessels of the Confederate River Defense Squadron fell to the other vessels of our fleet. The Mississippi had an individual score to settle. Dawn was breaking, and we were just making out the ships around us off the quarantine station when we sighted that persistent ram Manassas coming up astern in her effort to attack the fleet a second time. The work of the battery being over, Captain Smith was on the hurricane deck with me. So deeply was he imbued with the spirit of antebellum days, when officers might be censured for acting on their own initiative without waiting for an order from a superior, that he felt that he must ask permission before attacking the ram. He steamed alongside a gunboat, which he had mistaken at first sight for the Cayuga, the flagship of the flag officer of our division, Captain Bailey. "'I want permission to run down the ram,' he called to the gunboat. Just as we saw our error, while every minute was valuable, the Hartford smoke-blackened from the fire which the firecraft had caused, and looking a veritable battle-stained and triumphant veteran of war, came steaming by. Paragut was in her rigging his face eager with victory in the morning light and his eyes snapping run down the ram he called i shall never forget that glimpse of him he was a very urbane man but it was plain that if we did not run the manassas down and promptly he would not think well of us i never saw captain smith happier than he was over this opportunity he was a born fighter can you turn the ship he asked me yes sir i answered I did not know whether I could turn her or not, but I knew that either I was going to do so or else run her aground. Indeed, the Mississippi had not yet made a turn in the narrow part of the river, and it was a question if she could turn under her own steam without assistance. But with so strong an incentive at the first trial, we succeeded beautifully. When Warley saw us coming, he did not attempt to ram. He realized that the momentum of his 384 tons was no match for our 1,692 tons when we were coming straight for him. As the Mississippi bore down on him, he dodged our blow and drove the nose of the Manassas into the bank. We fired two broadsides that wrecked her. Her crew began crawling ashore over her bows, and Captain Smith immediately sent a boat in charge of an officer to board and report her condition. He returned with Worley's signal book and diary to say that the outboard delivery pipes had been cut and that the Manassas was sinking by the stern. Captain Smith disliked to give up the idea of saving her, but meanwhile the gunners in the forts had found that the Mississippi was in range and they began to pour in an increasingly heavy fire. As one weary gun's crew after another was called to their stations and their welcome, of our return to the scene of the night's activity grew hotter, it was out of the question for the Mississippi to remain a stationary target. There was nothing to do but to send the boat back in a hurry to set the Manassas on fire, and for the Mississippi to join the fleet at the quarantine station. A little later the weight of the water flowing into the Manassas' stern raised her bow so that she floated free and drifted down the stream. As she appeared around the bend, the mortar flotilla, which was not yet entirely certain of the results of the night's work, had a few moments akin to panic, and some of the unprotected auxiliaries of the fleet made ready for flight. When her condition was recognized, an effort was made to secure her, but before anything could be accomplished, she exploded and sank. The Mississippi, proceeding upstream, 
found the fleet anchored seven miles above the forts at quarantine and as we steamed along the vessels all the crews broke into hearty cheers for us over the news that we had brought it was then that we saw our varuna a screw corvette of thirteen hundred tons sunk to her topgallant forecastle but she was the fleet's only loss she had been the second ship in line astern of the mississippi in the first division being very speedy she had gone ahead of us passing the forts in less than fifteen minutes and found herself in the van of the whole fleet engaging the confederate river defense squadron for a while she was without support she fought with a gallantry worthy of her impetuosity until she was finally rammed by the stonewall jackson while the cayuga and the oneida coming up finished the work which she had begun by utterly routing the enemy we saw its results in the burning wrecks of the defense squadron along the banks of the river a broadside of canister had decided part of a confederate regiment in camp along the levee to surrender from the time that the two red lights had given the signal from the flagship to get under way until we were at quarantine only five hours had elapsed the fleet steamed from the quarantine station to a point about fifteen miles below new orleans where it anchored for the night weary as we were there was very little sleep for anyone as fire rafts and burning ships were drifting past us all night so far as we knew the rest of the journey up to new orleans would be without obstacles and in the nature of a parade the next morning we were under way early with everybody eager for a first sight of the city whose location we knew by the smoke rising from the confederate storehouses and shipping which had been set on fire our purser an elderly man whose place in battle was below looking after the wounded was standing beside me on the hurricane deck when suddenly batteries opened fire from both banks of the river at the ships ahead oh that rash man farragut he exclaimed here we are at it again but the opposition from the batteries uh, chelmet and mcgee were not formidable breaches for fourteen guns had been made in the levee walls which were to become a favorite method of expeditiously emplacing a battery for a few salvos at a passing ship in the mississippi river campaign we suffered little damage ourselves while we smothered chalmette and mcgehee with our broadsides soon we were abreast of the panic-stricken city where we found that the confederates had destroyed everything which they thought would be a military assistance to us including the formidable ironclad mississippi which was on the ways our guns not only commanded the streets but also the narrow strip of land which was the city's only outlet except through the swamps the taking of new orleans was the sensational achievement of the war thus far with the flash of the splendid news through the north farragut became the hero of the hour succeeding victories could only brighten the fame that he had won if he had not been a conspicuous captain before the war probably it was because he had not the gift of self-advertisement which often wins attention in time of peace how many bubble reputations of that sort were burst in the first stages of the civil war but happily mr fox knew farragut professionally and therefore his merits and he was given important work to do immediately under another commander the story of new orleans might have been different success always makes success seem easy many a commander could have found excuses for not trying to run the forts or for delay which would have meant that both of the new confederate ironclads would have been ready for battle when the passage was finally made like grant farragut always went ahead 
Instead of worrying about the strength of the enemy, he made the enemy worry about his own strength. The Confederates had felt that New Orleans was secure. It did not seem to them that Yankee enterprise would be equal to a stroke over sea at such a distance from our northern ports. Surrounded by low land, the most populous city of the Confederacy was protected from land attack, but not from occupation by troops under escort of a naval force making a dash up the river. As soon as it was evident that New Orleans was ours for the occupation, Farragut sent the Mississippi and the Iroquois back down the river to reinforce the force which he had left at quarantine. Neither the forts nor the ironclad Louisiana had yet surrendered, but the position of both was untenable. We were in their rear, and they were effectually cut off from the rest of the Confederacy. Indeed, a part of the weary garrison of the forts practically mutinied against holding out any further. On the 28th, the final terms of surrender were made through Porter in command of the mortar flotilla below the forts, which had not, of course, followed the fleet. I had the pleasure of stretching my legs ashore and of inspecting the results of the mortar fire on the forts. I was not uh, deeply impressed by the damage they had done. The shells had cut the levee back in places, and seepage had filled the bottom of the forts with mud. When a shell sank into this, it made a great splutter without much destructive effect. Yet there was no doubt of the moral value of the mortar fire in assisting the passage of the fleet. Among the Confederate ships was the McRae, which had been mercilessly engaged by the Iroquois. Her casualties in the exchange of broadsides at close quarters had been very heavy. Among the mortally wounded was her commander, Thomas B. Huger, whose case parallels that of Warley of the Manassas. His last service in the United States Navy had been in the ship which he unsuccessfully engaged. Charles W. Reed succeeded to the command of the McRae. Reed had been appointed to Annapolis from Mississippi, and was at the Naval Academy part of the time that I was, being in the class of 1860. Now I met him under circumstances that could appeal only to the chivalry of the victorious side. Savvy Reed, as he was known to his fellow midshipmen, came on board the Mississippi to get permission to take his dying captain and the other wounded of the McRae to New Orleans. Later during the war he captured one of our vessels and set forth on a career up and down our coast worthy of the days of Drake. Whenever he took a vessel that he liked better than the one with which he made the capture, he would transfer his flag to her. Appearing suddenly in the harbor of Portland, Maine, which was about the last place in which anyone would have expected to see him, he was able to cut out one of our revenue cutters, but was taken before he could get away with his prize. As a prisoner of war, he had to be quiet for a while, but eventually he was exchanged. Just before the close of the war, he reappeared on the Red River. There he loaded the ram Webb with cotton and succeeded in passing our ships at New Orleans, but about fifty miles below the city he met the Richmond. Though it seems possible that he might have got by her, he ran the web ashore and set her on fire. He was on his way to Havana, and if he had arrived there with his cargo, such was the high price of cotton at the time he would have made a small fortune with which to make a fresh start in life. I understand that he closed his career as a pilot of the Southwest Pass in the Mississippi Delta. End of chapter 5